Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll be reading out of the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect, and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but, when, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. I know already that I'm going to have to ask forgiveness. By the title of my sermon, some of you have perhaps discerned that I'm bringing 80s rock and roll in. And that choir was so beautiful and so um, awe-honoring of God. Thank you. Pray with me. Lord God, by your word, you have spoken to us, the word in Scripture and the word in Jesus. I pray this morning that as I speak, your spirit would do what it needs to do to make up or to amplify. Be in our hearts, in our minds, our imaginations, that we might hear you and see you. In Jesus' name and to his glory, amen. My nephew, Peter, was six years old. Blonde little kid, big green eyes, and a mind full of questions. We had spent a sunny afternoon playing on the beach, and now it was time for bed. Now, the windows in Peter's room looked east, and on this particular night, there was a gorgeous sunset occurring, and in front of that sunset, there were electrical wires just sort of, you know, lazily hanging across the horizon. Well, I sat on the bed after tucking Peter in when the question came, Auntie Kathy, how does electricity work? Desperately wishing that I had paid more attention in physical science class, I stumbled to a horribly unscientific and, I hate to say, unforgettable explanation. (laughs) Well, there are these little, tiny, invisible particles called electrons that hold hands and they run through the wires out there and when they get to the light switch, whatever they're plugged into, They turn it on. But where do electrons come from? By now I know I am fully over my head. 
They come from a power plant. Peter, they are made there, and they, when they hold their hands, they start there, and then it, they run all the way to the wall. Well, Peter was silent for a moment, <laughs> appropriately. Well, what happens if they don't stay connected to the power plant? Is that when the lights go out? I said, yep, and kissed him goodnight. <laughs> Today, Peter is married with children of his own, and I don't think it's my fault. He's in international marketing. He's not an electrician. <laughs> well, in the circumstances of the church that Paul is writing his letter to, the church at Corinth, he is telling us that those people have lost their connection with the power supply. Some important lights were going out in their community. You know, as beautiful as 1 Corinthians 13 is, Paul was not sitting on a beach when he wrote that. He was writing to a church on the verge of a nasty explosion. In the first century, Corinth was a cosmopolitan community, sort of like Washington, D.C. Lots of people came from different places to be there. It was a place of wealth and of culture. Uh, in terms of athleticism, it's said that their games rivaled the Olympics. There, was, there were you know, Donald Trump-like galleries and displays of wealth were everywhere, as was corruption. I read that archaeologists discovered within a two-mile area square, they found 33 taverns. <laughs> and as to lust and license, one said, Corinth would make Las Vegas look like a convent. Well, Paul carried Christianity to the city in 51 AD, and 18 months later, it was an exciting community of converts. But then five years later, he writes this letter to the Corinthians. And why? Because he is brokenhearted and ticked off. Some really creepy things by now, it's crept into the church. Not only the church, but to the neighborhoods. I mean, things like men were sleeping with their stepmothers. Elders were dragging one another off to court rather than finding ways to make peace. At the Lord's table, people were coming and going away hungry because people who were in the church who thought they were more important demanded that they get all the food first. Well, by 57 AD, this church is rotting from within. It is torn by cliques and power struggles. Men and women are vying for power I'm more important, my word goes. No, I'm more important, my word goes. Somebody said that if it weren't for the fact that the Lord was the head of this church, that the church at Corinth would have already disappeared. Well, in this letter, in the chapter just before what was so well read, thank you, Paul angrily reminds the Corinthians that each one of them has been baptized into Jesus Christ as one Lord and Savior, and he nearly shouts in capital letters, cut out the one-upsmanship. You know, the janitor is no less or more important than the head of your building committee or your budget or your finance committee. The priest is no important, more important than your teenager. There are helpers, and there are healers, and there are organizers, and there are miracle workers, and there are people who speak in tongues and people who don't Every one of them is precious. And if you want to be a successful church, 
Let everyone do their job and affirm them and support them and come together as one body. And then after having listed all of the uh, positions and center stage functions in the church, Paul delivers the master stroke that we know in, ch- in chapter 13. He says, you know, you would do well to encourage people to do their jobs, to affirm their best, Yet I will show you a more excellent way to be a great church, to be a good community. And then he goes on to write the 15 simple phrases marking the difference between how those of us who are in the community of faith are supposed to be and live versus those who are outside. Though you may speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels and have all knowledge, You can be as charismatic and as spiritual and intellectual and academically excellent as you can be. Though you may have the faith necessary to move mountains, you may be as pietistic and as evangelical as Billy Graham. Though you may give away all of your possessions and allow your body to be burned, You may be totally socially aware, eco-friendly, and nonviolent. You may well use all the talents and the giftedness you have been given for the greatness of the church. But without love, every stinking thing you do is worthless. Ultimately, as empty as the sound of a gong on the wind that disappears. You all know in your hearts that Paul is right. Who among us can define love? Who can say there it is and there it isn't? But every one of us has a heart to know when love is present. Unless deep down the love of the law is subordinate to the love, to the law of love. Unless compassion is more compelling than doctrine. Unless we live Christ's command to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and our neighbor as ourself. Unless we do those things, the most powerful and great church, the most wonderful of all nations, the coolest of all families, will be little more than a tiny little church fighting in Corinth. Well, here's where it comes. In 1984, Tina Turner, can you just hear it? What's love got to do with it? I know that if Curtis was here, he would break into song, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Tina Turner saying the question into our minds, what's love got to do with it? And the Apostle Paul is going to say to Tina, baby, everything, everything. You know, when I was in seminary, and this is just between you and me, to make this point, one of my preaching professors said, Catherine, you know, you could preach the phone book to people and get away with it if they knew you loved them. I'm not going to do that. All the other blessings in our lives help us become whole and effective in our world. You know, paychecks and education and health care and housing and equal rights and clean air. But in considering what it means to truly live, to get the juice out of this experience, (laughs) the difference really is love. You know, in the Greek language, there are three words for love. You've probably heard this before. There is the eros, which, you know, we really kind of celebrate on Valentine's Day, and poor Dennis had to deliver 80,000 bouquets of roses. 
Eros is the romantic, the sentimental love, and it's a good love, right? And then there's Philio, remember Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the kind of love you have for your community. And then there is agape, which more often than not is used in reference to the kind of love that God has for us, that holding, secure, present, powerful love. Well, what we hear in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the love referenced, love is, is agape. And I don't think it takes anything away from it, that it's agape. We hear the 1 Corinthians read it at weddings, perhaps at your own or at funerals. We all need to be reminded of the power of that love. And I don't know about you, but every time I hear 1 Corinthians 13 read, I go through this little quiz in my mind, kind of like at the end of a magazine article. You take the quiz, how assertive are you? Should you change your job? You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how'd you do? So I'm going to read a little bit of 1 Corinthians 13 and invite you to take the quiz. Where are you on this scale? How do you rate yourself? Love is patient, kind, not envious or boastful or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irrational or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I'll stop there. What kind of a score did you get? I want you to take heart. Only Jesus Christ himself could get a perfect score on this one. You know, as a visiting pastor, this pulpit, or at least my time in it this morning, is not the place like the Apostle Paul to argue who among you might be the greatest. But it is the place to echo Paul's words to you. That in the end, ultimately, it is about love. And yes, every one of us wants to score better on that quiz when it comes to us. But the question becomes, how do you get there? You know, despite the time-honored tradition of our American way of just trying harder, I don't imagine the way we become more loving is to respond to the Apostle Paul standing in front of us like this red-headed, bow-legged drill sergeant saying, be more patient, kind, loving, Gentle. I don't think it happens that way. I mean, after all, I want to invite you to remember a moment when your own heart was just filled with generosity and you just kind of wanted to love the whole world and you wanted to care for people. How did you get to that point? Nobody shouted that at you. Somebody loved you. In Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It, there's yet another lyric I want to lift up. It's that line, oh, Lord, I wish I could sing, what's love but a secondhand emotion? Anybody else remember that besides me? Yeah, okay. We all know what Tina probably meant, that in the melancholy of a romantic relationship gone sour, love just looks like, something that's shop-worn and cast-offable and worthless. But in the Christian vernacular, 
where love is not necessarily an emotion. She may have a point about it being secondhand. And in this case, that's not a bad thing. In 1 John 4, verse 19, we read, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. John the Elder knew that love was not a human attribute like being able to make a three-point basket or change the oil in your car or add a column of numbers or grow great geraniums. The love that he's talking about is not the result of our will, but is a divine gift. One that when received into our own lives, powers us to be its agents, to give it away to a loveless world. You know, try with all your own might to bear all things, to believe all things, to hope and endure all things on your own. How long does it last? The truth is, as Christians, one of the reasons we can love is because God and Jesus Christ first spoke divine love into our hearts. Don't tell me your conversion was intellectual. It happened here. That love was spoken into and received in your heart. Caring, unsparing, forgiving, spontaneous, redeeming, freeing, gracious love either crept in or overwhelmed you. You know, how often is it in our duty-bound and ego-charged lives, imagining that we are wholly in charge, that we, okay, my husband told me not to do this. He said, don't make it seem like it's them. Okay, I'll take responsibility. I find myself in those moments. More confession. Cussing at other drivers, being petty with a bank teller, ignoring small children, despairing that life is ever going to get better. At those times, I honestly find myself disconnected and insulated from that well of nurture, that lavish love that has been placed into my heart. Anybody else? To return to that place of acting in love, I can grit my teeth, and I can try harder with all my will and my brains, or I can turn once again to the reservoir in my heart where love thrives. At the close of, or in the middle of the passage that Paul wrote to us, he says, this love never ends. The power supply never fails. It's always there. It's always there tucked in our hearts and our being, but often it gets layered over by the imaginings of our minds about the things that we've got to do when we've got to be, or at least appear to do and be. The list of things that we have to complete, the gotta-dos today and tomorrow and before we die. And we make a lot of noise on the way getting there. Well, this next week, as you heard, begins the holy season of Lent, or lentils. The 40 days accepting Sundays before Easter, when Christians of all stripes and character take on 
Well, they set aside time, and some engage in particular unique devotions as a way of heart heightening their awareness of God in their lives. Lent. Okay, I'll have to tell her to, Curtis I did this, but I want to invite you all to do something radical this Lent. I'm close to begging. I want you to do something that is going to make you a better lover. Take time to be with God. Alone. In silence. And when you get there, don't let yourself rattle off your petitions or your gratitude in your mind. Don't come with any expectations that you're going to hear anything or see any visions. Just two minutes or 20, the more and more often the better, whether you're on a rock or on a rocker, try to surrender in that time any pretensions that you secretly pack around about yourself and just sit there naked and allow yourself to experience being loved. Being loved by the one who in Jesus Christ says, I have called you by name. You are mine. Nothing, nothing stands in the way of my love for you. No sin, no distance, no activity, no preoccupation. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are whole. You are forgiven. You are free. I want you to remember that you can't give a gift that you don't got. If, in fact, it is in the noisy layers of life that we gum up our own access to God's love within us, Perhaps it is in silence that those layers are shed, and I want to invite you to that. Henry Nouwen once said that if any of us could just experience for a moment how God sees us, that it would change us forever. Well, I can't pretend that the work of centering prayer, which I've just described to you and eight words or less. I can't pretend that it is easy. It's not quick. It takes time to get unhooked from the work of our egos and all the distractions of life, to get ourselves tuned back into that powerful love that is a part of us already. But who knows? If you do it, maybe next time a resentment or an irritation just comes barreling through you. Maybe you will honestly be able to take that person or that circumstance into your heart place, and it might change everything. More importantly, you might find that as you go about your, your day, that the meaning and the juice of that quiet moment can be the power supply for the use of your gifts. It might make you a better lover with your husband, your wife, your spouse, your friend, the bank teller, <laughs> all you need, well, you just need to stay connected to the plant for the lights to stay on. All glory to God. Amen. <laughs>